Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to the New York Times podcast. You are Ask Me Why So Many Fade, But I'm Still Here. Of music, news, and criticism, I am your host, John Caramonica. tell you one thing. I'm not on my own. I'm rolling with the team. Joe Coscarelli is here. Yes. Good morning. Live from Los Angeles, live from Santa Monica, perhaps. Karen Gans is here. Hi, John. It's me. It's <laughs> the problem, aka the problem. Lizzie Zolwise is here. Hey, Karen took my joke, so. Okay. And the biggest- <laughs> I had an alternate. I had an alternate. <laughs> we'll post game. And the biggest stepper is here, John Perellis. Being emotionally abusive as usual. Damn, we're starting off. Yo, okay. This podcast is dedicated to everybody who I have seen the last couple of days asking about it. Shout out to Emma and to Ariana, who I bumped into and we're talking to about this. It's dedicated to everybody on Twitter who shared with such good grace my mid-review of Midnight's. Shout out to the person who sent me a picture of a noose. That was fire. And thank you for returning me to the catalog of Lil Loaded, which I also appreciate. Let's get it cracking. This is not a great Taylor Swift album. I'm just putting it out there. I'm camera on today in the red jersey, tour merch, extremely rare. I have a lot of Swift ephemera. If anybody wants to go fund me for the Papa John's box, pizza box from this era, I'd be certainly game to have some contributions to that. Taylor is a generational artist. We all know that. That said, this feels stuck in place. I do have some theories about that, some of which I, I talked about in my review. LZ, talk to me. Where are you at on Midnights? That's right. Yeah, we're throwing right to you. I mean... I, I would make a baseball joke, but I don't I don't know anything about sports. That's okay. Yeah, I, I will refrain. Thank you. Stuck in place, use it. Stasis is, Damn, a, hell is yeah. a word that's been coming up for me. I don't know that that is a bad thing, though. I think this record has grown on me the more I listen to it. And I agreed with a lot of your review, John, that I think we need to talk about the way the project of re-recording her albums has sort of made the new music that she's making feel more backwards glancing and more self-referential than ever. I think there's a real Hall of Mirrors quality to this record that is both a strength and a limitation at the same time. It is very much a record in conversation with her older songs. She's literally sampling out of the woods on one of these songs, which is a song that's not even 10 years old in her catalog yet. So I really see her like looking backwards in this way that I do find interesting as a fan, but I find a little limiting to this music breaking out beyond like people who are very interested in Taylor Swift, of which there are many, many millions, apparently. I mean, we also have to talk about how this record is set to be like the commercial smash of the year. It's breaking records that she previously held with reputation, which I know 
for everyone, but Junk Monica in the world <laughs> so, sort of think there's a public perception that that record was sort of some sort of failure, but it was a huge commercial success. Vindication, vindication. So I think <laughs> this record is really hitting in ways that even Folklore and Lover did not in a commercial sense. And part of that has to do with the rollout. But I think come year end time and and as we're kind of looking at what happened this year, like the story of this record is going to be very big in the industry and the trends that it both forecasts and exploits <laughs> in a way. And shout out our friends at Hits Daily Double, who I'm sure are going to adequately cover all the business components of this. JP, where are you at on Midnight's? Well, to me, it's the first record where she's actively doubled back. She's going back to reputation. She's going back to 1989. She's revisiting a style that she's already moved through. Lindsay said it's, a, it's an echo chamber. It's a hall of mirrors. She's done this stuff before. Should we get very conspiracy theory right up front? Could this be the Missing Karma album? Mm. Mm-hmm. That's the, you know, the Reddits are, the Reddits are Redditing. The Tumblers are tumbling. She has already semi-debunked. So she said that these are all new songs. So take that as you will. That is also what was shared with me. Now, look, narrativizers are going to narrativize, you know? I will say one of the challenges of this record in terms of the doubling back is I feel like if it's doubling back to one moment, it's doubling back to Lover. I know other people see other things or hear other things, but Lover to me is maybe the least tonally consistent and least successful of the pre-folklore albums, the canonical pre-folklore albums. And one of the things that I really struggled with on this record, and Joe, you had shared that YouTube kid who was just like guessing if Jack Antonoff produced the songs based on the first like three <laughs> seconds of the vocal production. <laughs> this is something, I mean, we talk about doubling back to an idea or doubling down on an idea. This particular textural approach, which to be frank, by the eighth time listening to this album, I was like, are we on a, like a James Blake type beat? Like what are, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> to me, it didn't seem like a insertion of rebar into concrete to make it stronger it seemed like a kind of like we are 3d model printing a thing that already exists wow that was a crazy construction metaphor i don't even i need to go back and listen to that <laughs> first of all you can't see my hgtv stand that's really that's really where my stand energy is being spent these days it's true joe does this, does this record hit different in california joe i've been on the move <laughs> this week and i haven't <laughs> been in the, in the skies <laughs> it doesn't you know when i received folklore i was remembering back i was on vacation i listened to it in a thunderstorm it was perfect Ooh. scenario wise and you guys had the opposite experience and i think that continues to play out in our reception of those records this one hit me at a very strange moment i've had a busy week i've been on the move i haven't been in a position rap to capital really in stores it. now yeah thank you yeah, yeah. by the book so we can continue doing Taylor Swift podcasts literally uh, till the like, end of like time. Actually. And honestly, until this Sunday morning, I feel like I hadn't understood this album. I will say, you know, play six, play seven through. I'm starting to get it more, especially side A. I find the middle and, and side B st- just still exceeding my grasp. But I do... <laughs> I don't know. That's like, a generous phrasing. Yeah. Joe. It's a okay. Generous Here, phrasing. Here's here's really where I'm at. I'm starting to divide Taylor Swift albums into 
singer-songwriter Taylor Swift albums and singing to track pop star Taylor Swift albums. And I and this is not science. I know she's a singer-songwriter through and through, but these don't play to me as songs written on piano or guitar. And I know some of folklore was her singing to Desner tracks, but there's a real element of of her trying to fit herself around things. Specifically, what I'm struggling with on this album are the melodies and the verse melodies in particular. She has this run-on flow that she uses on certain Jack Antonoff productions. And this goes back to 1989, which has never clicked for me. I think it's my least favorite Taylor Swift album, which I know is controversial. And when the moments hit that are pure Taylor Swift, like the song we listened to coming in, You're On Your Own Kid, to me, that is real capital T-S, Taylor Swift. That's why I opened with it. Even though I don't think it's the best song on the record, it is a Taylor Swift, no quote marks, a Taylor Swift song. And the difference between her pushing herself to me in directions I don't really want her to go and when she's really in her pocket, and it's not even about the good stuff sounding like the old stuff. It just is of her and it has a authenticity to it that you feel just feel comfortable in her songwriting. And there are verses where half of the verse to me is failing and half of the verse is working. And there's a lot of that on this album and I can't go all the way there. And I really felt like she and Jack had hit on something new in the folklore era, songs like Mirrorball, August, This Is Me Trying, Gold Rush, My Tears Ricochet, Illicit Affairs. Like To me, those are some of the best songs she's ever created. And I thought she had moved past her need for Jack Antonoff Productions. And then those came out. And I thought maybe they'd hit a new gear. And I agree, this feels like a swerve. And it's not always successful. Can I play a song that I think has some of the drawing within the lines vocally that maybe you're referring to. To me, that question is a song like this. Certainly the beginning of question. Also, strangely, Dan Adler's favorite song. Interesting. Shout out Dan. Let's listen to a little bit of question. Can I ask you a question? Did you ever have someone kiss you in a crowded room? And every single one of your friends was making fun of you. But 15 seconds later, they were clapping too. I hate this song. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I struggled with this song. And I struggled with this song because my favorite lyric on this song, which comes early in the song, I read it on the lyric sheet. And then if you would have asked me, like, where the word break was, like, where the line break was, I would have gotten it wrong five times in a row, which is, I don't remember who I was before you painted all my nights, a color I have searched for since. And it doesn't break where I think it's supposed to break. It doesn't feel, the rhythm doesn't feel quite right. Karen, you say you you are opposed to question. Frankly, I saw on Instagram, which you're not opposed to, extremely sus. <laughs> you want to just tell everybody. I mean, you already told the people who follow you on Instagram. Why don't you just tell everyone else? I think it's a mid-album as well, but the songs that I like, I really, really like. And I'm just going to completely pretend that the 3 a.m. songs don't exist because those are seven Bro. songs I don't like at all. So I'm just going to I'm just going to talk about subtractive. it. Attractive. I'm just going to talk about the 10 tracks of which I really do like six of them, possibly seven. No, look, we're going to go with six. It's 13 just to. Oh, my God. It's 13. Yeah, of course. <laughs> that that lowers my my percentage. <laughs> I told them I was doing math before this began. This is why I don't do math for a living. 
My God, you're right. Of course it's 13. I knew that. Anyway. Brown University in the house. But listen, there's no requirements <laughs> and I didn't take any math. I think, I think that's showing right now. Sorry, should I go get my math team jacket just for the yeah, rest, no. for the rest the of the math, uh, John, no, I, John, math team is getting up there with a semester in London uh, for pop, for the yeah, podcast yeah, as a, drinking as a game. Trope. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I agree with everything that you guys said about the the tone and the tenor and the shape of the album. It, it does feel like a return most to Lover to me. But then when I went back and listened to Lover, it had many different shifts and aesthetics. And it's one specific element of Lover that it, it's sort of hitting that over and over again. I went back and I listened to Reputation yesterday and I was like, God, part of the thrill of Reputation is that there's so many different colors and every song, you really had no idea where she was going to go. And it, it was so, like, quote-unquote wrong that you're like, damn, she did something wrong, quote-unquote wrong. I mean, I love, every, I mean, it is well-known that I love this She did something bad. She did something bad, so feels so good. <laughs> but it felt very good, yeah. yes. And that is, you know, the kind of free song of that is what makes Reputation, like, beyond, to me, beyond a great album, but kind of like a an album that I think other pop stars could look to as a mode for them. But when I went back to Reputation, I really liked 12 of the 15 songs. Now I'm concerned about my math, so God knows if I have that right. But <laughs> And Lover, I liked 13 of 18. Oh, wow. You really did math. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I did. I did. Crunching numbers. I did, which was which gives me a personal... So it's a 72 on Lover and an 80 for Reputation, <laughs> oh, we're go, we're which makes sense. Metacritic brain. Oh, we're going Metacritic? <laughs> no, I just, I, just, I, just, I just divided and, and multiplied to make it out of 100. I was just curious to see my own, my own view. I'm getting a 50 tattoo. <laughs> on, my, on my arm. <laughs> but I mean, the things that work here really, really work. And the songs that I like the most are Antihero. I can't, I'm beyond thrilled that this, this is the is first a single. Classic I'm like literally jumping up and single. down. She, like, she hasn't hit with a single like this probably since Delicate, you know, RIP to the prospects of Cruel Summer. But like, this is, to me, it's Blank Space Part 2. It's, it's really, really, really peak radio Taylor. Like, this is, this is a hit. Could not agree more. Everything is just so aligned perfectly and lyrically. And then after that, I do love You're On Your Own Kid, which I know, John, you've had some issues with the vocals. I, yeah, I've like warmed a little bit to it. But yeah, I, I don't like love it, but it's I, it has I softened a little bit towards it. And the one that I think that you're viewing as controversial, but I am not, is Karma. Which Bro. I'm waiting Bro. for people's faces. Well, how, how do you all not like the Bro. song? <laughs> it's the song is amazing. Can we all listen right, let's to play. it? No, 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 no. Let's let the people judge. Let's play a little bit of Karma. And Pedro, you can even play like the good parts of Karma, wherever they are. You can go find them. What does that mean? <laughs> this is Karma. Karen. I, I don't want to be one of those podcasts that's like defend your but like defend why, karma. why are you not having fun with this you know i mean this is it i think the track itself is is one of the more fun upbeat tracks on the album it sounds different than the other ones in a way it's crisper this is a sound wave track yeah yeah sparklier in a good way as someone texted me who shall remain nameless why she got to bring sound wave into this <laughs> <laughs> Soundwave, Soundwave best, best known for his work with Kendrick Lamar, former Taylor Swift collaborator Kendrick Lamar. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, and also Soundwave was on London Boy, perhaps my, if not my least favorite song in the Taylor Swift oove, like certainly like a bottom 10. Yeah, up there with, up, absolutely. Up oh, there, no question. down there with me. Oh, God. Oh, it's worse than me. 
And is me, it? Me is no. ter- yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And me is not it. I want to hear JP talk about karma because I think he's the. I think we're. I'm. I'm with. I'm lightly with Karen that I though I don't quite understand what this song is about. I don't know what karma is. My boyfriend means. Why do you have to? Why can't it just be fun? I'm fine with that, but I want JP to cast the deciding vote on karma. Well, I kind of know exactly what it's about. It's about classic Taylor Swift. It's about revenge. It's about, mm. you know, it's going to come back on you. Taylor Swift writes a lot of songs that obviously start with a title or a concept. I'm going to write about karma. I'm going to write about how I'm going to get the last laugh. Maroon, which is not one of my favorite songs on this album, also is like, oh, I, the color maroon. Doesn't that go with burgundy? You know, y- you can just see the self-assignment wheels clicking. Karma isn't just one of the more upbeat songs on the album. It's one of the few upbeat songs on the album. So it's such a relief when it arrives. But I do think it's it's a song written through a concept instead of a song that arose out of, you know, that mysterious, impressionistic, imagistic process. I'm actually really glad you said that because it's worth taking a bit of a step back following Midnight's an album that I think is an insufficient album lyrically. Why do we feel that way? Because if, sorry, Karen, cover your ears. If Katy Perry had put these songs out, I'd probably be like, these are fine, you know? But we're talking about Taylor Swift, who is genuinely one of the most, one of the sharpest storytelling pop singer-songwriters of the last 20 years. Someone who has made a huge career out of taking intense emotional moments, rendering them with narrative detail and exploding them onto like grand pop stages. So if that's how you're coming into a record like Midnight's, knowing that that's possible, and then you bump into a song like Karma, it feels, it feels sus. I want to address that, but zooming back into Karma, which I am team... This is a bad song. That's why I knew JP was the deciding vote because I could see Lindsay's face. <laughs> yeah, I was just seething. And but so so JP voted against you and I, Karen. Sorry. <laughs> well, I have two things to say about it. One is that to go back to the the sort of karma album conspiracy theory that JP brought up before, my take on that is that it wasn't an album, or maybe it was, but I think this song could have been written in the reputation era and and the sort of wink to the fans is like this is an old song that i'm bringing back because it feels of a piece just perspective wise and songwriting wise but that also like for a songwriter as talented as taylor swift like that shouldn't be like i shouldn't be questioning is this a leftover from 6 years ago that she just didn't put on a record like it shouldn't feel like that to me and i think another reason that this song doesn't work for me and kind of alludes to what John was saying before, that there has become a sort of excess and a sloppiness to some of her lyric writing that I think going off what you were saying, Joe, of like the way that her flow on the Antonov productions, like there's something run on and kind of ceaseless about it. And as someone who knows how succinct she can be as a songwriter, like I feel like one of the most succinct, brilliant Taylor Swift lines from mine is, you know, you made a rebel of a careless man's careful Yeah, daughter. I mean, That's, incredible. That is succinct incredible. storytelling. Nothing on this album, even within, like, within five football fields. Pul- Pulitzer no, quality. No, like, she's mixing metaphors. 
I think in that song, like it's karma is this, karma is that. And it's all these things that like don't feel that precise. She's throwing all these metaphors at the wall in these songs and some of them stick and some of them are really quotable. But there's, I miss that concision in her songwriting. I miss that sense of really laboring over a lyric that feels crafted and kind of polished down and not just like every idea. And I do wonder if some of that is moving from collaborating with other songwriters like Liz Rose, like drink who from the early days. Yeah. Moving to collaborating more with a producer like Antonoff, the whole point of Jack Antonoff as a producer, as we see with his work with Ana Del Rey or even with Lord, they have lyrical perspectives. I think while Taylor is, like we said, a generational songwriter, an amazing talent, I think she is someone that sometimes could benefit from collaboration on a songwriting and being pushed like be, like, being like pushed and being edited in the right places too and i don't think that that's something that antonov can offer his artists and i think that's part of why you get this narrative of the ambivalence about what he's able to sort of get out of them and i think someone like lana is really good at bringing all these ideas knowing how to edit her own you know just getting some real like poetry out of that approach. And I I think a lot of my ambivalence with the Jack Antonoff productions, which it sounds like we all kind of share, is I don't know that he's pushing back or challenging her from a pure lyric perspective. And I miss that in her music. I don't even think it's a question of is he pushing back or challenging her. It's more that the end point of the Antonoff productions feels preordained. And it's like they're both showing up to deliver the preordained thing. I mean, this is like, obviously, if you follow hip hop, you understand about tight beat production. You go on YouTube, it's like any major producer, so-and-so tight beats, you know, some kid in like Cyprus is making records that sound exactly like Kendrick Lamar records. These songs, this vocal production is Jack Antonoff type beat vocal production. And it just happens to be done by Jack Antonoff. And that's a struggle. And like I said, that kid on YouTube we were talking about, and I hate that it had to be him, but it's true. That's it's, it's <laughs> absolutely what's happening here. And I think, JP, you mentioned that like a song like Karma feels like it's an idea before it's a lyric. It's an idea before it's a fully constructed song. I would say the vast majority of, of songs on this album it's almost as if they knew what they were intended to sound like and then merely kind of like drew within those lines rather than did something spontaneous that could potentially spiral in a different direction. And yet there are sounds on this album that are really good. There are tracks that are really good and there are vocal moments that are really good and they don't always go together. Think about an anti-hero like after the everybody agrees is at the bridge and then the new synth comes in like Jack is doing some cool stuff in the mix here or even like the post-chorus little Christmas music-y thing in Antihero, also the little sleigh bells that come in. Like, there are nice textural touches. A lot of Christmas music also. There is, there is. <laughs> and, but Taylor, Taylor's been, she's been circling Christmas music yeah, yeah, for, for a while. Yeah, but didn't you have the conspiracy theory that Evermore was supposed to be a Christmas album? <laughs> I mean, Tis the Damn Season, I think it's still just a killer. It's funny you mention the Jack stuff. I know, you know, people resist the idea of putting that that he is somehow controlling all of these women and putting them in his box. But something that his records with Lana, Lord, this Taylor album, and even that the latest Claro album, Sling Have, is a lack of rhyme and these run-on sentences and they're they're very mm. verbose. And I don't know what it is. I think maybe it's that his tracks are quite bespoke 
they're not pop song loops. They live and breathe and grow as they go on. And I think there's something about that that invites these vocalists and these songwriters to try to sprawl with him, to try to unfurl their thoughts. And I think it doesn't always work. I'd love to know which came first. I'd love to know, is the lyric package coming first? We should listen to that bit of Antihero. Because I, I don't, again... It's possible for a person who is a good songwriter to write mid-songs, a person who's a good producer to have a narrow approach to production in a particular context. But let's listen to a good stretch of Jack Antonoff stuff. So this little bridgey part in Antihero, let's listen to that. Karen, I know you were chomping at the bit to get in on this. No, I just wanted to defend karma one more time. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't want to go backwards, but it's like, do we think that Out of the Woods is a lyrically brilliant Taylor Swift song? And yet it still is a great song. The issue here is that there is no getaway car and there is no Miss Americana and the Heartbreak Prince on this record. You don't need to, you know, sling your arrows at karma just because we're missing something. That is not why I'm slinging arrows at karma. <laughs> I'm slinging arrows at karma because it's type goofy. Like it's it's <sighs> just it's it's beneath her. I'm sorry. You're allowed it's to. Ha- ben- we can have fun. Give us fun. But I I am missing one of those more deeply. Constructed- I want to have fun. I'll listen to Bandman Rill. Like I'm good. <sighs> it's like it's just it's type goofy. It's it's literally like look. I can I- tell you what's goofy. Question is goofy. Bejeweled, Bejeweled is, is goofy. goofy. Bejeweled, Bejeweled is the most yeah. lover core song Bejeweled's on not here. Goofy. It's not goofier <laughs> than Karma. <laughs> it They're is. Piece, yeah, they I are think. of a piece. But, but it's the same thing. It, it's, oh, I, I want to write a song called Bejeweled. Let me put all of my jewelry metaphors into a song. It's very much a construction project. I want to zoom in for a second on Maroon, because I think Maroon is the one is one that is both backwards looking. It's very self-referential. She already has a song called Red. You know, she's already spoken about this color family. She's done that across her discography now. And I think that Maroon has a lot of great moments and a lot of bad moments. And sometimes, like I said, like totally like slammed together, like to me, like a, a line like you were standing hollow eyed in the hallway, the way she delivers that and with the alliteration, like peak swift and then on the very next line carnations you had thought were roses that's us like all sort of jumbled together and the first verse the incense the vinyl shelf i like all of that the cheap ass screw top rose yeah oh that shout like, out shout yeah, out that white really lightning, that that shout out white lightning. <laughs> yeah and but it, then you get does. to the chorus and there's all this space and she's really using the production and landing the chorus and the outro to me, when she drops the octave on the hook on the outro, like one of the best moments on the album, these songs are a lot. So many of them are almost there. Even Lavender Hay is like pretty experimental for a Taylor Swift song. Shout out to Zoe Kravitz, who's been working. Shout out to Maggie Rogers, <laughs> who's been working on an album with Jack, I guess. And maybe this came from those sessions. I don't know. Soundwave on this one. But then you have the bridge. And it's just like for Taylor and Taylor and Jack specifically known for their construction of killer bridges. Talk your talk and go viral. Like and the way it's delivered, like it's just like. She didn't write that one. It's, she didn't write it's, that one. it's a mess. It's a mess. I'm not, I'm not crazy about get this off my desk either. I don't know. Okay, so yeah. I feel like Taylor did not write that line. Wait, first of all, let's take a quick break. Let's listen to a little bit of Lavender Haze. And then we're going to come back and get involved in this. I feel the lavender haze. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Okay, before we pick the conversation back up, just something that has been on people's minds for a long time that I wanted to to touch on and and make a small announcement about the email, the DMs, the Facebook messages that I get the most ask about shirts. And you know what? We made some shirts. We're going to give the money to charity. It's the popcast.myshopify.com. They're available now. If you came to the live show, we had a few there. Also, at my closet sale, LOL, we had a few there, but we haven't put them out widely now. They are available. Please go grab one. It's the popcast.myshopify.com. All the profits going to the New York Times Neediest Cases Fund, which is a charity that the paper runs for more than 100 years. Incredible cause. And I'm excited to get them in your hands, and they only exist because you guys have emailed and been so generous and excited to have one. So here we are. Now, back to the convo. We're back on the Midnight's cast. JP is here. Lindsay is here. Karen Gans, a.k.a. Ganscore, is here. Joe Baldwin, a.k.a. Joey Bloggs, a.k.a. Joe Coscarelli, is here. I've been thinking a lot about the children of Taylor Swift. And if Taylor were the sexy to, babies. I was going to say, you mean the sexy babies? <laughs> I didn't say We've, that. I can't. We went thirty-one minutes without saying "sexy baby." I just first of all, and we're going to go sixty minutes without me saying it for the record. <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about the children of Taylor Swift, and if Taylor were to kind of like reverse borrow, what was the thing that she did? The Phoebe Bridgers thing? Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like, kind of like, you come down to my house and you done a, but yeah, she's going to reverse n- borrow. Nothing new. That yes. always feels like, that has felt to me like the kind of world of folks that she should be drawing upon. There is some borrowing on this album that does not feel like it's from a natural inheritor of Taylor Swift. To the point, Maggie Rogers, I know, Lindsay, you also very much heard the Maggie Rogers on Lavender Hayes. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear Taylor attempting this kind of like Monke Drake stuff oh, uh, yeah. in the mix. And I, I sort of 
a very strange in 2022, there's a version. And, and again, I talked about this on Instagram a little bit, but there's like a version of like 2015 or 2016, the two of them get in a room and crank out 10 of the best songs you've ever heard in your entire life. And that album like changes the actual course of pop music history. Whatever this is, is yeah, not imagine that. Lavender Hayes without the bridge, but you just hear Drake say, yeah. And then do whatever he's going to do, you know, like there's uh, exactly almost there. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. almost there. But there's there's probably like three or four moments on the album that if another pop star did them, I would say that's whack that you like listen to Drake 10 years ago and then like sort of did like a light rip with Taylor making this choice. It, it just seems baffling to me, especially when of all people she could pick up the phone and make that call and actually do something really, really provocative and interesting. Also, the pitch her shift loss. in vocals. The That's all I'll say. Her, her loss. Exactly. <laughs> coming soon. Coming soon. So the pitch shifted vocals where she's like in dialogue with herself. There's, you know, to me, there's an echo of that. And then the anti-hero video where different versions of Taylor are kind of in conversation with herself. What do we make of the choices of other sounds that she's choosing to kind of incorporate or retroactively bring onto her palette? I think they feel for the most part, like, disappointingly five to ten years ago. I think you pointed this out in your review, John, that I don't hear her in any sense, like, looking towards the future on this record. And that's both in the way it's doubling back on her own meta past, which I do kind of like in a way, but but sonically, that's more the problem for me, that it sounds like... It sounds like dress. Yeah, or it sounds... it. A vibe I was getting a lot was Pure Heroin, the first Lord album, the one that Jack Antonoff did not produce, which is kind of interesting. But that's also, like you're saying, these were, in some ways, someone like Lord or even Maggie Rogers, in a sense. Like, these are the inheritors of what Taylor Swift was doing earlier in her career. And it is a little disconcerting to hear her then tapping into the sounds of the people who were initially inspired by her. I think sonically it just feels stuck and feels a little dated. I also like really can't stand all the pitch shifted vocals on this. That just feels so 10 years ago. Forget whether it's au courant or not. Like put that to the side. Is there a philosophy? Like let's listen to Midnight Rain, which has some of this on it, I think. Midnight Rain? That's yeah. 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 Okay. A lot of Let's it. listen to a little <laughs> bit of Midnight Rain. Is there a philosophy at work here? Why couldn't she just call someone else to do the vocal? What is she trying to say in the down-pitched vocals that she can't say at normal pitch? What's happening here? I do have a theory on that particular one. Like, that's the only instance of the pitch-shifted vocals that feel a little meaningful to me in the in the thematics of the song. Like, I, and I think we should be talking a bit, too, about the sort of topics that she's addressing on this record, a lot of which are ambivalence about this perception that she is going to get married and have a family and is going to follow a certain path that was laid out for how a woman is supposed to be successful. That R.I.P. Joe Alwyn, you put in all this labor <laughs> only to get subslagged on this album. <laughs> this is a bit Don't Worry Darling the album. Yeah. Uh -huh. Wow. Oof, just going to leave that right uh -huh. there. 
Uh huh. Let that. Let's let's have an Antonov pause after that. I think I'm on to something. But continue. You're calling it. You calling I, it I now? Like this. You Babe I like Ruth. This. You doing this? You Babe Ruth into the, <laughs> to the right field wall. All right. All right. There's some Olivia Wilde feminism going on, I think, in that song. But aside from the production on Midnight Rain, I find that song thematically to be really compelling. And again, I like. As someone who is deep enough in her catalog to get all the meta references that she's making and stuff, I find the way that she's sort of gone back to her past songs, her past way of presenting this idea of romance and love and the love story that ends with the marriage proposal or something. She's really teasing out an ambivalence about that later in her career and like complicating this kind of fairy tale idea that she was so persistent and propagating like when she was a teenager. And and I find that compelling. Again, I think there's limitations to that because you have to be really versed in her history to get the way that she's playing with that past. But I hear the pitch shifting in that song almost taking on this like masculine quality that she's playing around. She mentions politics and gender roles on another song. Like I do see her engaging with that in a way that's like a little bit more explicit on this record than she ever has. You were looking for zingers from this album. You were looking for the great line. I mean, in Lavender Hay, she sets it out. She says, the only kind of girl Lacey is a one night or a wife. It's pretty direct, asking me if I'm going to be a bride. But it seems like something she could have said five or even seven years ago. I do think her relationship with Joe Alwyn, even though he's you know, Bill Bowery. I I, I think you're misattributing to Bill Bowery. Bill Bowery. Bill Bowery. (laughs) The songwriter, Bill Bowery. The songwriter, noted songwriter, Bill Bowery. The soon-to-be Grammy-nominated songwriter, (laughs) Bill Bowery, certainly. Can't wait for Um, the speech. But, like, I I was thinking about this, too, with, with Lavender Hayes, of, you know, this idea that the tabloid attention that used to be paid to her boyfriends and her, you know, various relationships and who's she dating now... I do think in some ways a version of that fixation has become, are they secretly married? Are they engaged? We saw her wearing a ring. That energy has now focused on this one relationship that she's been in, the longest relationship of her life, I think. It's been like six years now that they've been together, I believe. He was the muse of reputation in some ways, too. So like she's been now in what seems like a very stable and supportive relationship for the past four or five albums and and used to sort of get this songwriting material out of various short-lived relationships. So I think that there's you're a saying way we in want which... the Mary J. Blige version of Taylor is what you're saying. Just say yes. It. Yeah. Damn. No, I do. That's so rude. I do want more drama that's, though. That's I rude. do want more drama. That's rude and unfe- unfeminist <laughs> and rude. Part of my frustration with a lot of the songs on this album I feel like they are relitigating the public relationships that she's already litigated on prior albums. Mm, and I think that Midnight yeah, Rain is facts. part of that. That's big very facts. frustrating. Yeah. Not to do the total Us Weekly stuff, but the one where she's like, he wanted a wife and I was making my own name. That's Midnight Rain. No, oh, that's Midnight Rain. Okay, that's a Hiddleston song to me. I think she mentions a holiday. Remember the the 4th of July mm. party shirt? Wait, it's is like, there, that's not the Gyllenhaal song? Isn't there a Gyllenhaal song on Oh, you too? think that's a Gyllenhaal song? No. I, I, I felt th- like the one with the New York socks, whatever thing. Isn't that a Gyllenhaal song? Oh, I... Can I take an unpopular position here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's you that, JP? I don't care. Yeah. I'm so yeah. sick. I'm sick with the meta narrative. I'm sick of the fan service. I'm sick of it 
please write songs. Yeah. You know, but don't that's address what folklore your... was. And folklore was yes, so yes. good. I know this is a controversial opinion Bro. on this, but JP, I know you're I'm with about me to on mute this. you. Like, I'm that, you, that is about to mute you. Like Taylor Swift brought everything together that she's good at. And she wrote songs that are not about Taylor Swift TM. I co-signed this entirely. Me too. Yes. Me too. <laughs> yes. Joe, me and you, folklore girlfriend, reputation boyfriend. That's all it's I have to say. It's true. It's true. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Literally, uh, can I, I want to pull back a sec from speaking of our own meta narrative. We reference Metacritic. We reference John, the hate mail you've gotten for the last couple of Taylor Swift albums for writing. They doxed, boy. They doxed you. They threatened to dox you over and over again. We're in this moment of knee-jerk anointing of classics. We have music publications out here saying immediately yeah. upon this album Say it louder for the that publications it is, that it back. is perfect. And the fans expect everyone to fall in line and say that this album is perfect. I just want to say we love Taylor Swift as an artist. We consider everything she does individually on its own terms as part of the whole I don't think we could take her more seriously. And I think like if you consider your artists to be, as we've said, generational talents, the most important people making popular culture, like let's think and talk about these people in a real way. Like we are not stan communities. Like yes. we need John's review of this album. We love you, Joe, and you're totally right. I'm, yep. Some of these yeah. other reviews are so embarrassing. They're so embarrassing. And you all should be ashamed of yourself. Big facts. Number one, big facts. Okay, I want to add a couple things to that. One, we don't like Taylor Swift for clout. Number two, we don't critique Taylor Swift for clout. That's not what this is. This is not about clout. And I only say that, not that anybody that we know would ever think that, but I think that there is like certainly a universe on my Instagram comments that thinks that that's how these things function in the world. And I hope when they grow up and reach something past 18, they'll understand that that's not the case. That's number one. Number two, I wanted to read something Look, we talk a lot about the role of criticism and art on podcasts. We've had entire episodes dedicated to it. We talk about it when we critique the artists that we love and we care about. I wanted to read a couple of tweets from someone who just like really distilled it very cleanly. This is from Rain Fisher Kwan, who is a young writer who is extremely astute on internet culture. And Rain wrote, I promise if professional music critics are scared to review an artist's work, <laughs> Because any realistic criticism, even in a positive review, could result in death threats or doxing, you are not doing your favorite artist any favors. You are actively impeding their ability to make good art. You are insulting them, and you are insulting yourselves, and you are obviously insulting the critics who do an essential service for the art world. You deserve respect as a consumer. You are more than a sentient income stream that exists to drive merch sales and boost numbers. Amen. That like, is, that well is what I'm saying. Like, yep. mm -hmm. like effing yep. men. You are doing True more spit. to burnish Taylor Swift's artistic legacy than somebody who is just throwing five stars at her. Serious five artists stars. need to be considered seriously. And it's not happening. And it's not only with Taylor Swift. Obviously, it's not only with Taylor Swift, but it gets to not. be, it's the worst with Taylor Swift. Yes, yeah, the think. apex. Yeah. Uh, as they say on the internet, a lot of y'all could learn something from this. There's a specific tenor of the conversation about this record, too, that I think in some ways, because Folklore and Evermore were surprise releases and there wasn't like a time to like get ready at midnight, let's all listen to the new Taylor Swift record. And also because I think Lover and Reputation, to some extent, were received a little more mixed or had more complicated narratives coming in. There is just a tenor to this conversation of just 
let me generate all the memes about why this record is the greatest thing of all time. And it feels particularly heightened with this record. I do think it is, like I said at the top, though, it's like translating into a level of chart success that she's not experienced in a while. And I think that's worth looking at, too. This record is on track to move more than a million a wild units. amount. Yeah, yeah which like, is yeah, we, which we thought we'd never see again. And the rest of this year has been extremely stagnant on the charts. We've talked about this a bit, but the only thing that's really hit before this has been Bad Bunny. Harry Styles, did that come out this year? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's Bad Bunny, it's Harry Styles, it's Morgan Wallen. Beyonce, you know, not as, obviously not as major in this conversation, but she opened high and she's been hanging in there. But that's it. It's really not been, you know, there were all these giant albums. We thought Kendrick was going to be big. We thought Post Malone was going to be big. Even even the Drake record did not do what it was supposed to do, or at least in my mind, what it could have done. Okay, there are two songs we really haven't talked about a lot, and both are, are I think, fascinating for completely different reasons. Let's talk about something that's weird but beautiful. Snow on the Beach. No. <laughs> are we falling like snow? Was the lost Lantel Reverse, as someone on Twitter said, stolen when her backpack was stolen out of her car on Melrose <laughs> That's Avenue? That's the most compelling conspiracy I've heard yet. <laughs> I actually think this is a perfect use of Lana Del Rey. I'm in a. What? I'm, I'm, yeah, no. I think, that, I think Hell no. she is such good texture on this song. I think the Bro. backup vocals, the little post chorus thing, I, I have no problem with the use. Oh, we all You're love having Lana sun exposure. in our way. Your sun exposure. I, I think there. this is a weird song in general, but I have no problem with the way that Lana is used here as a shade. Can we talk about the distribution of labor on this song? Not simply the singing, which obviously the, the memes about Lana being like trapped in a cage, gagged and bound while Taylor sings her song, her lyrics. Obviously, there's oodles of those memes, which are all very funny. As far as the pure lyric writing, what percent of the lyric writing do we feel is Lana on this? Because I feel like uh, I feel like on more than a few moments, I'm really hearing Taylor singing a lot. What I identify as a Lana rhythm in the sort of syllabic rhythm sense. I think it's yeah. possible that she is doing Lana, but not literally doing Lana. She's and then, trying and, to write a Lana Del Rey song. Yes. Oh, that's what you think of it. Like, yeah. like a Dear John. Like a yep. Dear John, but yes. with someone she and likes. Then I, and then I think, <laughs> and then you probably get her coming around on the back end when she says, oh, I wrote this like in Lana mode. We might as well just get her on it. But I, I have no think? idea. Pure speculation, but I think it's I just more prefer that to way. think that they like met up at uh, like at Jack's house or something. They happen to be there on the same day, and we're just well. There's like, a photo. We have to do this. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm saying like I like to think that as an origin story that that's sort of uh, that it came from that. I have like a related question that I I think comes up on this record and specifically in this song, which I've gone from in folklore era being like absolutely thrilled that Taylor Swift was like dropping f bombs and had incorporated cursing into her life. Like, I, I've just followed that very closely. I love that development. I think it's come to be a bit of a lyrical crutch on this record. Yeah, It's not that it offends my delicate sensibilities for her to call Snow on the Beach weird but beautiful, but it's just... Gratuitous. We were talking about that lost concision or that lost specificity on some of these lyrics, and I do think in a weird way, she's come to rely on not necessarily the shock value of a lyric like that, but that it's 
assuming that that's conversational and that's how people talk when lyrically the song does not really work for me. And I think the chorus just relies a little too much on that simile. It's a little bit of like an AI or a Dolly kind of like, this is how humans speak. Like, here's, yes. here's yeah. the there were some good tweets about being over Taylor cursing and sort of the gratuitousness. And I strongly support all those tweets. Okay. Absolutely. The most, all right. The most old school Lana moment in here that I think you're right could just be now that I think about it, Lana written. Now I'm all for you, like Janet. Can this be a real thing? A thousand percent. Like, that, that is Taylor no writing, universe. Yeah. Yeah. I can't no tell universe that Taylor wrote that, that. Is that Taylor writing as Lana? No. Or is that Lana no, writing for like Taylor? That's it's Lana. So I think it's old Taylor writing Lana. for Lana. I, I think it's a Lana line. I was texting with someone about that who shared the the video of Janet like vibing to it and seeing like Janet. I was like, Janet would not approve of this. And then Janet put the video out and said, and this person said, oh, look, like Janet approves. And I was like, ma'am, this is a hostage situation. Wait, is it like, real this or is... it's a mashup? Janet actually put up a video. I didn't see it. I think it's real. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I thought I'm it like was 90% sure it's real. I mean, unless it too is AI, but no, I think it's <laughs> real, but it really does feel like if you are an older star and a younger person kind of like references you, it is now kind of de rigueur yes, to be like, I'm going to go on like TikTok it. and like nod very pensively and appreciatively. Yep. But no, that's a hostage situation. I I, I don't know if, if it's genuine. Who can this say? is the whole meta narrative that Taylor Smith seems trapped in, that she escaped in folklore and is now back in this social media arena. I want to send her a memo saying, Taylor, don't read the comments. Mm. That's right. Talk that talk. She's definitely reading the comments. We haven't talked much about the second half of this album in bits and pieces. but Yeah, we have. Bejeweled, Karma. But I want to talk about Labyrinth, which I think is a true dud. I want to talk about Mastermind. And I want to talk about Sweet Nothing. I think Sweet Nothing is uh, up there with some of Taylor's best ballads. I think it really, I, I I think it really works. And I think the production works. Bill Bowery went Wait, can off. I say something funny about Sweet Nothing uh, that Karen and I got into in the edit? Yeah. I think that there is a rhythm in the singing that is like a shanty-esque rhythm, and Karen mm. would not let me have it. She wouldn't <laughs> let me have it. I had to change it to lullaby. I had to change oh, it to lullaby. Said lullaby. But like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like, I still low-key stand by that. Anyway, please continue. Not not a shanty. <laughs> I think the Sweet Nothing lyric gets back to concise country Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. It's the vocal production. Doug, Doug it's, the, it's the fact that it's the only song that's not like seven stacked Taylors like squeezing each other to death. But also the, you say but that, also but we like delicate. The, the play on words. The play on words of hearing your sweet nothings, all you ever wanted me from me was, was nothing. You know, like that. that is... As Bill Bowery, Bill in, Bowery in ear. did that. But all right, wh what about Mastermind? Because Mastermind, again, is like, it almost has the countrified Taylor twist, right? Because the third chorus switches perspectives. Like, she hasn't done that in a while or not as consistently. But it doesn't land for me. And I think it's going back to JP complaining about the meta narrative. It's too much about Taylor Swift as professional dater. I talked about this in the review about Taylor Swift versus Taylor Swift in quotes and her responding to public perception of her or to the character, the widely perceived character, I do think is good raw material for her. It's as good as whatever emotional or dating stuff that she dealt with so effectively on the early albums. I like the writing on Mastermind. Like, Mastermind's one of the few songs that doesn't feel rushed. The whole album feels rushed. We've gotten very far into this episode without me saying what I think is the most fundamental critique of this record, which it feels like it was done 
fast. It does not feel like a sustained body of like hibernation, idea generation, idea development, idea delivery. It feels like, wow, we got to run for whatever reason. And when she released the seven more songs and she put out something where she said, you know, she really thinks of it as a concept album. Do any of you think that this actually works as a concept album? Because I don't. I don't. What's the concept? The midnight concept, that they were late night thoughts. The concept is it's a clock. The you concept, can use it to the tell concept, time. The concept, it's not a concept. No, yeah. the concept is <laughs> I had to put line. out an album to boost ticket sales for the tour next year, but I could not put out songs that would violate the fundamental direction that the tour is going to take. That's the concept. Sorry. Forgive me. Antihero is going to be great in a stadium. Absolutely. I don't have a As problem. I don't have a problem Karma. with that. Yes. <laughs> As will Yo, labyrinth. I'm gonna go get a. I'm gonna get a hot dog I'm, and a pretzel I'm when Karma comes. Labyrinth on. too. I want to hear you guys defend labyrinth. It doesn't. I uh, like labyrinth. I like the whole like Phantom of the Opera church organ thing. Kate Bush, <laughs> James Blake ass song. <laughs> yeah, it is. I like the whole elevator metaphor. Oh no, I don't like the. I don't <laughs> like the elevator. That's that's one of these lines, or I'm just like, it, where's the editor? It's where's not William good Bowery enough to be a Taylor Swift. Where's Bill line? Bowery? He's only, he's Bill Bowery from now on. Okay, but wait, if, we're, if we're going to mention the editor and all of the stuff that shouldn't be here, let's talk for at least two minutes about these seven extra songs because we haven't really been taking them must, seriously. Must we? Two minutes, two let's minutes. Let's listen to Glitch. Yeah, Glitch is cool. Glitch is a good example of a song that probably could have gone either in the Reputation era or in the Lover era in the Reputation era as just part of like a, a big tent, ambitious experimentation. In the Lover era of like, hey, we're throwing 10 different things at the wall and most of them are pretty good because we thought through each of the individual 10 things. Glitch to me of these seven songs is the best. Four of these songs literally should never have been released. Like they're actively damaging to the Taylor Swift. But brand. that goes for most bonus tracks. I think we're holding Taylor bonus tracks to a higher standard than most because we actually listen to them. Bonus tracks are bad. Bonus tracks are fan service and streaming boosts. I agree, but I just don't think it's important. It's not the album. Bonus tracks are never good. However, I think the bonus tracks on her re recordings have been, at least on the red re-recording the Taylor's version of Red, we need to kind of unpack this too, just how incredibly prolific she's been in the past few years. You know, we haven't talked much about the re-recordings, but I think they fit into this record, both in the backwards glancing nature of the project, but also in how she's just like completely saturated the market and is still hitting all these milestones and streaming-wise and stuff. And I definitely think the bonus tracks are mostly streaming filler a la a too long Drake album to go back to her, <laughs> you know, imagined collaborator. But she's just now completely emptying the vaults and putting everything out there. I find it a little fatiguing as a fan, like to go through all these songs. I think I was appreciative that the record was only 13 songs long. And then this we got this dump of the rest of them. And I think, you know, again, I think she's just in this mode of both looking back at her past, but also throwing 
everything out there, even the rough drafts. And yeah, I just it's super want, serving the fans. Yeah, but I I want things to be a little more labored over. Like, you know, I agree with the idea that this record feels rushed. It doesn't feel like there was another pass given to some of these writings that like it there's a rough draft feel to a lot of it. Dark lane demos, Taylor Swift. <laughs> One thing she mentioned behind the scenes and about the creation that's interesting is, and that I had forgotten about, is that she said they made a lot of it while their partners were starring in a movie together. Have you guys seen the trailer for the Joe Alwyn, Margaret Qualley film? Shout out Claire Denis. Yeah, shout out Claire Denis, although maybe a rare misstep for the Queen based on that trailer. But I think that that's an interesting, it's an interesting framing for this project when you think of your romantic partners making something together and you feeling almost like you have to do something like while they're busy uh, together as like a compliment to, I don't know. It's a, it's a very strange dynamic and it'll make for an interesting page and a half in the Taylor Swift bio in like 25 years. Wow. Wait, I wanted to mention something about glitch to me. Glitch is almost a path forward in the same way that false God was almost a path forward. I think there's a lot of attempting to do false God over again on this album. Someone mentioned this to me in the DMS, Allison, I think shout out to her false God was something I'd never heard from Taylor. And it has some of the run on this. It has some of the coloring outside the lines. It has like a a semi futuristic production. I really think that, that, that she was trying to do a lot of that again here and some of it works and some of it doesn't. But I think Glitch is in the, in the same mode. Are we avoiding a lawsuit? Let's, let's do Y'all that. Y'all have stopped me from talking about Vigilante Fish for an hour. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. And it stops now. It stops now. Who's the song about? Joe, who's the song about? I read on Genius.com oh, that, stop. It's, that it's about Scott Brom, a.k.a. Scooter. So not, it's about Scooter. It's not about Borchetta. I I don't know who it's about. It's fiction. It's fiction. We're not putting oh, Taylor's stop. lyrics on trial. Fine. <laughs> but that's yeah, fine. Okay. It's about an antagonist. It's Mad Woman Part Two. It's the sequel to to Mad Woman. Some people have speculated that those songs are about Taylor's very public rival, Scooter Braun. I like it. It's Billy I Eilish. Mean, this part is a, two. I don't like this song. <laughs> I don't want to listen to this song. What? But it is a brutal entry in the catalog. Oh, wait. Can I just get a quick roll call? Lindsay, Karen, JP, Vigilante, yay, nay. I think it's mid, but I like she's trying something. And I appreciate She's definitely that. trying something. JP? JP? This is JP? her trying. It's Bad Blood Part 2. Mm. She's not trying something that new for her. Oh, it is. Wow. There you go. Very but you guys, John, I think, and this is, comes back to the reputation point, and you, reputation boyfriend, folklore girlfriend, you like... <laughs> Can't be theatrical Taylor in a way that I just I want grounded down to earth. I also like grounded down to earth Taylor. Taylor. I, not cat eye Taylor. Look, I don't dislike that version of Taylor. That version of Taylor is the entire raison d'etre of why we're here 15 years later, right? Like that's why we're here. Yes. We all showed up for that. And to go back to like a podcast trope from four years ago or six years ago. All we wanted was a Joni Mitchell record, like all we wanted. And we got folklore, which is, I'm sorry, it's not that um, to me, but 
I do like that version of Taylor a lot. But one of the things that I found so refreshing <laughs> about Reputation, everybody take a drink. One of the things I found so refreshing about Reputation is it was the first time that I felt like Taylor leaned into a version of her own art that was uncomfortable, but her sheer songwriting skill, choice and collaborator, and overall sense of performing in theater allowed her to transcend what I thought were not organically delivered Taylor Swift songs, but they became, in my mind, crucial to the narrative of who she could be in the pop sphere. And I think it's the first time that I think she really directly entertained that idea of how she might pivot and grow and evolve. And everything subsequent to that has been an ebbing. It's been a receding. And I was hoping on some level, I mean, look, Folklore Evermore, you give it a pass because of the pandemic. Her and Aaron Dessner, like in a verdant field somewhere, like screaming at each other, you know, like whatever. It's a different kind of records. They're fine. But I was hoping that Midnight would be taken as an opportunity to ponder what the big picture of Taylor Swift's next five to 10 years could sound like. But really what we end up with is kind of like a coda to the last five years. Yeah, I feel like I know less where she's going from here than I did. There's nothing before. Yeah, it's not there. Well, she's going on tour. Hey, go. <laughs> and that was a great point in in your review, John. And yeah, JP, keep going on that point because I think you guys are right. I mean, you said how anti-hero is going to sound good in an arena. This album is those big open spaces rather than the sort of crouched over in the woodlands interiority of folklore and evermore. She's leaving space for people to yell along. Those Jack Antonoff productions, he's always got an arena in his head. Even when he's being quiet, there's always that spaciousness. And I, I do think that the sound of this album is, oh yeah, I remember what it was like to tour arenas. I do think it's geared for that. We can picture the B stage where the folklore evermore interlude will come. Another hot dog break. Okay, one last thing. So I was talking to Helen last night, a friend of the pod, who asked me to address this specifically. And it kind of touches on the bigger questions about Taylor's potential pivot or lack of pivot. There's been some discourse on Twitter. I think Ann Powers was bringing this idea up of like, when do female performers really have the opportunity to change and reinvent themselves or bring new perspective into their music? And that has a lot to do with having a child and kind of the before and after of that. Um, and making the argument that perhaps Taylor is trapped in the amber of having not having crossed into that part of her life yet. How do y'all read that? Because I, I have some thoughts on it, but I'm curious how everybody else reads that. I thought it was a really interesting reading. I've been thinking about it a lot. It's not something I ever really considered, but I do think it fits within this record and even kind of what I was saying about marriage before, that there is a sense of almost antic stasis to this record uh, that that does, again, feel very millennial and it feels very what we thought was going to be post-pandemic, but sort of we're still living in this changed world that's still really confusing and don't know what to do, like, you know, someone of her age. And again, she's been in this relationship for five or six years now. As far as we know, they're not engaged. She's thinking about marriage on this record, but comes out in a really ambivalent place. I found it to be a really instructive way of, like, reading this idea that we still consider her this, like, woman child, even though she's about to turn 33. Joe, what's your energy on on this particular line of thinking? 
I haven't thought too much about Taylor as mother, but I think that this idea of a sorted sort of arrested development and an extended adolescence, childhood, childhood has always been a huge theme in her music, the idea of children imagining what adult life is like. And I think it's tough. You've seen this in a lot of these mid-career, mid to late career pop stars. Pop stars are older now. This generation of A-list star that we have, Kendrick, Drake, Beyonce, and Taylor getting up there. We're not used to, I think, people dominating the top of the charts into their 30s and 40s. It's complicated. And yeah, I think they have one foot in their glory days and one foot in whatever's coming next. And and we joke around, but it's Taylor Swift divorce album. Like that's the real next phase. Motherhood, sure. But like divorce album is like Let's where you imagine go. her ending up. God for God Let's forbid. Go. Like I'm not wishing you no, know, we've, ill we've had on this conversation before on, on the podcast. Yeah, but yeah. and I think that life changes give you material. I think to bring it back to Drake, as we always do, Drake and Taylor two defining artists of of our lifetime and constantly in conversation though never in collaboration they both need new material they both need something else to write about karen what do you think about this i mean, it, i think it is really interesting and i haven't given it a ton of thought i think like her signifiers of maturity have always been like i'm drinking you know or i'm cursing, I'm cursing. Yeah, yeah 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 part of the issue with the backwards lookingness of this record sonically is and and content wise is if you had put me to sleep 10 years ago and woken me up 10 years from now and said this is the record taylor swift released in 2017 i would have said sure no problem like there's nothing that marks it as a product of the present there's nothing that marks it as a product of a particular phase in her life it does feel like removed from a broad picture life narrative except for the kind of oblique you know, people have these expectations about marriage of me, and I'm maybe not totally sure about what's going to happen with that. But apart from that, sonically, there's almost nothing that marks it as the work of 2022. And to me, that's frustrating. And I think the idea that Anne put out there is is extremely fascinating. But also, if you listen to Reputation, that was Taylor evolving and taking on a different version of what her sound and art could be like. And Karen, I know you think about this a lot. I can't help but think about Madonna well, was, and Madonna's consistent. Was yeah, say. I was yep. I'm just going to serve you up. Madonna's consistent reinventions both I assume before even before she had her first child. Part of this also is that like what type of artist is Taylor? Like do we think of her as a confessional songwriter, a country artist, a folk artist and a singer-songwriter mean when which we interpret all of her first-person songs to be about herself? And then she shifts to become a pop star. We don't think that everything that Madonna or Beyonce or Katy Perry says is necessarily about themselves, right? And Beyonce just made an entire basically concept album about going out and partying, which does not sound like the work of a quote-unquote mother. I don't know why I had to have that in quotes. <laughs> Damn. Sound, it didn't sound like the Damn. work of a parent. That's or, rude, Karen. Well, it reminds me of Jesse. Moms party too. Moms can party too. But, you know, like when Madonna had that shift, I mean, so she... I don't want to say she did it first, but she did almost everything first. She became one of the first pop stars to address parenthood on Ray of Light in 98. And she had a couple of songs on there about becoming a mother. And I thought they were really effective and they were moving and they were sonically really interesting. That was the beginning of another very sparkly disco period for her. I feel like Taylor's kind of trapped between these two things. Like, do we want her to be a pop star writing about abstract things or just love or the world? Or do we want everything to still be about herself? 
I don't know. I feel like that's part of this question. And none of the people on this on this episode have children, just for the clar- just to clarify. None of us have been so blessed to have had our art impacted by parenthood. So just just putting that out there. That's how we have so much time to talk about Taylor Swift. Real, on a, sun, on a Sunday true. afternoon. Real talk. But I mean, I, I think some of Taylor's most interesting and compelling songwriting is the songs where she gets outside of herself. That's why I cited Getaway Car and Miss Americana before. That's the elements of folklore and evermore that I like the most. I was thrilled that she had removed herself largely from the narrative in those places. And so part of the disappointment for me of this album is that it does feel like such a, a doubling back in that sense. But that doesn't mean that the writing has to be immature. I agree in general that I think she needs life to happen to her. And maybe when you're so famous and you have 280 million Instagram followers, you will never have life happen to you again. She can never walk down the street. I don't know. It may be the true limitation is just her scale. Everybody, Karen, JP, Lindsay, Joe, always a thrill. We could have done this for six hours or more. That is our show. One thing I would like to emphasize to everybody who is concerned about our critiques of Taylor Swift and this album is that I'm only cryptic and Machiavellian because I care. Listen to every podcast ever at nytimes.com slash podcast. Email us at podcast.nytimes.com. Get in the Discord. Get in the Facebook group. Subscribe to podcasts anywhere you get your audio content. Google, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Pedro Rosado from Headstuffer Media is our able producer, especially able on a weekend and on short notice and on fast turnaround. Shout out to Pedro. We will be back next week, and you know we are going out with Vigilante Fish. Well, he was doing lines and crossing all of mine. Someone told his white collar crimes to the FBI. I don't dress for villains.